Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees in the Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. I hope you are having a great day today, a great week. It is a little bit rainy over here, but uh, autumn is setting in and, and uh, I can't complain. Look, we had a great, great, great summer and we're still having a great day. Uh, there's still some great weather ahead, so... Um, you know, I'm, I'm not complaining. I hope you're having a good time wherever you are. Um, and um, it's time for our daily podcast today. Something that I can do without anymore. Even if I want to go to sleep, I can't do it. I need the podcast. Um, thank you so much for joining in and, and listening to me. I know it takes a lot of your time. So I won't keep this very long. Uh, today's uh, topic is, why did India become poor? Okay. This is something that we have been talking for a very long time, um, you know, brainwashed and indoctrinated by the Indian National Congress. India became poor because of, of the British. Um, they stole 45 trillion from us, which is absolutely, I, I don't even know whether to puke or to cry or to laugh. Um, and that's why India became poor. And India's poverty today is because of... Um, because of of the British. So today, 75 years later, we are we are uh, poor because of the British 75 years earlier, and all our money was taken away by them, and that's why we're poor. Um, you can laugh, you can cry, you can say what you want, but we've been brainwashed and conned by the by the Indian National Congress on this topic, and it's time to look at it very clearly. It's important to have this time and to go back step by step. So we like to say we started with the Mughals, as if life started with them, okay? Uh, life did not start with the Mughals, did not end with the Mughals, and, and it'll be a, we're five billion years ahead, we'll be five billion years to go still, and, and the short span of time that the, the Mughals were there, or the, um, the British, would seem just a blip in the radar. And so why they have um, harped on it or concentrated only on it instead of concentrating on the um, instead of concentrating on the uh, you know the positive or to to empowering um, empowering our youth, uh, but that is typical socialist. Socialism is about lying to you and telling you that everyone else is the problem. You have to stay on the on the plantation. And, and be dependent on, on, on their socialist government while they con you off the money. Um, basically, uh, basically, that's what it is. That's socialism. They have to keep you on that plantation hooked and on a constant uh, spate of uh, farm of fear and, and polarization. And once that, that, uh, that happens, um, you know, they, they, they can keep, you keep giving them their votes, and and uh, they keep uh, stealing money from you. And this is exactly why uh, they harped on the British with $45 trillion. But let's go through it one by one. We say the Mughals, uh, under the Mughals, there were, the GDP of the Indian subcontinent was, three, was 33. Uh, India's GDP was 33%. Um, of the world's GDP. Now, how did they measure the world's GDP at that time? They had no way of measuring the world's GDP at that time, okay? Even if they had some stats, their stats wouldn't be 
as um, as concentrated or as uh, valuable as it, is, as it is today. But even then, the Indian subcontinent was the richest place on the planet at that point of time, uh, simply because there was no other place. The Americas were not formed to that extent. Um, the North America was still under civil war. Um, so civil war had taken its toll. Um, South America had an economy where, where gold and, and silver was being uh, mined, but still did not have the, um, the capacity as that of the Indian subcontinent. No other land was, was as great, even uh, Asia Minor, a place that we call Turkey today. Uh, there, the empire, the Ottoman Empire was coming down slowly. Uh, it was all, already on its downturn. So the Mughal, uh, the Mughal era was approximately, should I say, 33% of the world's GDP. But when I say Mughals, the only Mughal emperor that really invested and, and, and made money was um, uh, Emperor Akbar. Okay. Before that, Babar and Humayun didn't have any, uh, did not reap the benefits or didn't, were not the great empire that the Mughal Empire had become. It was Akbar who invested from the time he was born. He had relationships. He formed relationships with local kings, other kings around the place. He formed alliances, good politics, uh, good policies that uh, spurned growth, um, invested in, 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 in both sides of the divide. And he was the biggest emperor of the Mughal era. But after that, there was not that big, um, um, that great an em emperor of the Mughal Empire. Uh, his son, Emperor, emperor Akbar's son, was Jahangir. And Jahangir spent all his father's money. Everything. Everything he spent, there was only jewels left, not even all of that. Um, and Shah Jahan, it is very well documented that Emperor Jahangir in, uh, so, bought out, uh, sorry, used and, and finished all his father's money. So much so, when Emperor Shah Jahan came to power, he had no money in the coffers. There was no money in the coffers at all. Um, the only thing was there that was the jewels and the gold. Um, and that's, that is a point that comes up again and again because um, Shah, uh, Shah Jahan built, uh, supposedly built the Taj Mahal. He built um, uh, Shah Jahanabad, which is uh, the, the area that still exists in Delhi. Um, he's supposed to build, have built Delhi. So how did he get the money? He built the Akbar, he built the fort, the Agra fort. Uh, well, part of it at least, not the whole thing. Um, I don't know if the Agra fort was, was built by Akbar. Um, the Agra fort, let's go and see here. Uh, so, absolutely. Um, how did, um, how, where did the money go? It's because the money went, uh, was spent completely by Jahangir. And so, um, yes, the Agra fort, sorry, was built for Akbar. I apologize for that. Um, now, this topic is brought up again and again and again. There was no money to build the Taj Mahal. So 
Sajahan did not have any money. There was no way he built the, the Taj Mahal. And that was the biggest point because Jahangir, his father, spent all the money uh, completely. And, and that was a big problem. So by the time uh, Aranzip came, he, he even had to put back the Jizya tax, remember, to keep... Uh, to keep the uh, the orthodoxy, the mullahs and the tullahs and the imams happy because remember Akbar had stopped uh, to appoint the uh, jizya tax um, and even if it was still being done clandestinely by and large uh, he needed money uh, he had to keep the, the orthodoxy happy he had to keep the orthodoxy uh, well uh, greased, their palms well greased, and so he put back the um, he put back the Jizya tax uh, and to put money back into the pockets of the of the orthodoxy and to buy out their uh, loyalty. So that was what it was. Even Aranzib didn't have any money because the whole thing was spent by Jahangir and 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 whatever was left was spent by Sajahan. Uh, and after Emperor Aranzib in 1707, the Mughal Empire comes down. Now, there were some more emperors after that, we know, but the bulk of the power had already gone, and the rest were just nominal kings, um, which is important to understand. Now, what I'm trying to say here is when any empire comes to an end, it doesn't come to an end because of what's going on in the outside. It's not the outside that is the problem. It's because the turbulence is on the inside and there is no money left to fight the enemy on the outside. So when your empire has collapsed, it's because of the revolt and the rebellion on the inside. This revolt and rebellion on the inside leads to the revolt on leads to alliances to the back door with foreign powers um, and no money by the state to have to fight, no money to invest in, in their military, because remember, even then, the biggest expenditure of an empire is your military, your armed forces. Every empire is the same. You need military power in order to uh, secure your territory, to secure your assets. Uh, no money in fighting means you're using your military and your budget for the fighting on the inside. No, it leaves you with no money, no men to spare, and then it leaves you with men uh, with, with no money to fight the enemy on the outside, who have allied with people, other groups, splinter groups on the inside, like the Indian National Congress is doing now. It's allying with groups, um, with the left, the socialist, the Marxist groups, uh, the leftist groups uh, on the in the planet globally, and they're trying to bring the in the Modi government down. Similarly, every government, every empire is the same. So. Every empire comes down when there is no money. No money means no defenses. No defenses means your empire will come down. So when the Mughal Empire came down, there was no money. So this big thing that, uh, that India was 33% the GDP of the planet during the Mughals, yes, and they squandered the whole thing off. Everything was squandered off, off lock, stock, and barrel. There was nothing left. And that is very, very important to understand. 
every single empire is the same. Pakistan is coming down now because no money. China is having a problem because no money. Uh, Sri Lanka is coming down, no money. Bangladesh has a problem, no money. Because there is no money to to maintain the economics on the inside because they're investing it in, in, in violence, in rebellion, in, in military expenditure. And because they're investing in military expenditure, the problem uh, there is no money on the outside. So money is gone. There was no GDP. Okay. That's very important. So whoever left fell off the, uh, the Mughal grid, uh, they formed splinter groups, vassal states. Uh, they formed different, different small groups. And the, there was infighting that went on until 1857. It did not stop. The fighting did not stop. Each one was trying to get the scraps. And they allied with the Europeans on the ground, okay? So the English were allying with some, the, the French were there, the Portuguese were there. All of them were allying with the splinter groups that fell off the Mughal Empire grid when the empire collapsed. And, and the fighting went on. That means more investment in money. Um, these were proxy wars that were going on, and each time uh, a local splinter group for the Mughal Empire allied with a European power, uh, they they opposed another splinter group who had allied with another with 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 different uh, wing of the European power. One with the French, one with the British, one with the Dutch. I'm not sure about the Dutch, but the Portuguese. Um, they found they 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 had proxy wars on the in on the flanks of the of the Indian subcontinent, um, in conjunction with the locals who were also having their own proxy wars. So it was a mess. The subcontinent that means the expenditure on on violence wars on the Indian subcontinent from seventeen hundred to seventeen eight seventeen fifty seven was humongous. Whoever there was that everything was gone. There was no money, okay? So in 1857, when the Sepoy Rebellion happened, uh, it was very easy for the British to form an alliance. There were many Indians, Indian states, kingdom, uh, vassal states who allied with the British. Uh, it, we have told that it was a war of independence. It was never a war of independence. It was a war to uh, settle scores and to take pick up uh, scraps of the Indian subcontinent, whatever was left. So it was really a war to settle scores. It's never a war for independence. And this, uh, because we were weak, because we were fighting, because there was so much of investment uh, in, in, in defense from whoever was on the ground, there was still no money left afterwards. So people who say that the... Uh, the Mughals were so rich and the British stole it all. No, the Mughals had no money. That's why they collapsed. And the splinter groups, also the Nawabs and the hunting hunters and gatherers, and they too collapsed in the end because they were too busy fighting. And because they were too busy fighting, we, um, you know, the British finally were able to settle down with alliance, form alliances with the multiples of kingdoms, the, the uh, individual kingdoms on the ground, and resurrect the Indian subcontinent in the manner that they choose to. So they they choose to um, they they kept their princely states. They they formed their alliances, the conglomerate. Uh, they had their darbars. They had their alliances, um, and they invested in trade. 
Okay, they invested it in, in setting up their administration in the country, their school system, uh, their university system to the detriment of the, of the local Indian uh, system. Uh, the Gurukuls, whatever left, was pretty much stopped. Um, and yes, they had, uh, they built, they, they, they invested in infrastructure, in roads, they invested in infrastructure in trains. Um, and, and they invested in Punjab. Punjab got the bulk of the investment for agriculture, um, not only agriculture, but um, the armed forces, because most of the armed forces came from the Punjab. So there was investment, but it was to suit the British Raj in conjunction with their allies on the ground. So whichever allies allied with them, they got a, 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 a chunk of the goods. Um, so whatever funds or whatever money was taken from trade and commerce uh, by the British, first of all, it was crumbs compared to what was there before they came. What was there was already spent on, on, on military, on um, wars, and there was literally nothing left. Whatever was left was trade and commerce and uh, Eastern British East India Company capitalism or crony capitalism, should I say. Um, obviously, when the British are investing in, uh, in military on the Indian subcontinent, they are going to take the biggest chunk of the, of the, of the profits. They're not going to give the biggest chunk to the locals. Um, and so, yes, they, they did take a, a lot of money from the investments that they made in infrastructure, on roads, on in investments in, uh, in universities, in, in schools, investment uh, for, the, uh, for their civil service, investment from their buying of goods and, and, and services, from their raw material. We don't know how much. We don't know how much they took. Okay, because there is nothing that tells us how much they took, and most, and it was all allied with the local Indian Nawabs and Maharajas. So the local Indian Mah Maharajas and Nawabs, who allied with the British and gave them the keys of the land, allowed them to to exploit the resources of the Indian subcontinent, are greatly responsible for uh, the the loss of resources. Um, and funds to the Indian to the to the United Kingdom, they are as responsible, if 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 not more, uh, for allying with the uh, British. But you also have to understand that at that point of time, there was no uh, way to guarantee your security. They were two small kingdoms. They were really small. So if they didn't have this neutral power, the British were neutral. The British were not there because, well, they were they were holier than thou, or they had the better armed forces. They were just neutral, and the corruption of the previous uh, Nawabs and the Maharajas, and the corruption of the Zamindars, the corruption of the Mughal Empire, had come to a point where none of them were getting along e with each other, and they're still not getting along with each other. We still just can't stand each other's guts. It is true, and so the British were neutral. They were absolutely neutral a group. Uh, they did not speak the language. They were not interested in local politics. They were interested in trade and commerce and money. Okay, And as long as they got a, a, a piece, a big piece of the pie, and, and um, there was security on the ground, 
um, the British were ensuring the security. The Nawabs, the Maharajas, and the princely states were also uh, secured in its in its security because the goal of the British, the, the deal was to support the the local princely states, the, the small vassal states, um, and they would get a cut of the of the of the industries. They would get they would get a cut of the money. They would get a cut of the trade, which made them very very happy. So the British did not steal everything. It was all done in conjunction with the locals. And whatever they managed to get from the GDP was split between the local Maharajas and Nawabs. And it was split uh, between the, the British. And obviously the British took a big chunk of it. But there is no stat as to why and to how much was taken. So to say that 45 trillion is absolute ridiculous. Um, 45 trillion even today we don't have 45 trillion there's not one computer or not one calculator can calculate 45 trillion it is just a made-up figure that they say oh well the british took 45 trillion because we do not want to admit that the problem is ours okay that the problem was because we were fighting on the inside we allied with we, we allied with the british even after the jalian Balaban massacre there was a there were plenty of people who were allying with the British among the Muslims, amongst the Hindus, amongst the Maharajas, the Imams. Plenty were allying with the British because the British secured their security. As long as their security is secured, they don't care who's dying on the outside, how much money is taken, but the International Congress didn't tell us. So, uh, 45 trillion is, is, is a, a nutcase figure. Um, and second, more importantly, the Indian subcontinent was already impoverished uh, by the Mughals after the collapse of the empire, after 50 years of fighting by the local splinter groups, uh, and then came the British. Now, what the biggest problem the British did was not the money that they took, not the goods, the raw materials they took. The biggest issue that I find with the British is that they removed the schooling system, the local schooling system, the gurukuls on the ground um, on the Indian subcontinent. Once you take away your knowledge, once you take away that connection to your, to your source, then all is lost. Even if you put anything else, they put their, um, they put their British education, which really did not, uh, even if they had sciences, we were lost, we were completely lost. Without the education, with the, without the knowledge of the heritage, we were lost. On one side, you have the, the Muslims and, and their madrasas, which were absolutely ridiculous. On the other side, you had um, the British with their English schooling. And it, that is what destroyed the Indian subcontinent, the education. Because education is the backbone of your society. Without the education, without the knowledge, there was no backbone. And people were impoverished. State after state, kingdom after kingdom, uh, there was no, there was no education. No education means uh, not a way, no way of rising above the status quo. No way of improving on your commerce, on your trade. Um, no way you can hand down the knowledge to the, your descendants, and slowly by slowly they will be immaterial. And that's well, that's what God us, not the money. Money comes and money goes, and no one really cares. So having said that, by 1947, we uh, we were split. Even then, India was doing a lot better than any other Asian country. What country was doing well in, in 1947? Not Japan, 
definitely will not because Japan was was butchered and battered after the Second World War after its loss. Uh, not South Korea, none of the Asian countries, uh, not Pakistan, uh, not Sri Lanka, none of the countries. India was still the strongest country in the Middle East, in Asia in 1947. Then what happened even after the trauma? Even after the trauma of 1947, uh, there were industries, um, industries in the in, in the Indian um, on the Indian subcontinent. Um, in 1947, it, it was not all that we want garbage bags. The the Indian National Congress um, likes to say, "Oh, British left us in in garbage bags." That's absolutely that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, it's not true because there was there were industries there. The Birlas were there. The Tatas were there. Um, there were many companies. There were industries. There were uh, there were, there were businesses. Uh, there was a lot of trade and commerce. There were factories that were there. Um, yes, there were there there were factories uh, that was there in um, in 1947. Not not as much as before the British came. It was a pittance. Uh, you have to. We have to admit that. But there was still uh, there was still plenty, plenty, plenty of uh, industries um, in 1947. So we did. It, they did not leave us high and dry like we like to say that the Congress likes to say, which is absolutely wrong. What I'm trying to say here is we did have some basis moving up the ranks in 1947. Um, we were not left high and dry. We were still the most powerful uh, land in Asia. We had a telephone system. We had a postal system, a connected postal system. Nowhere else in Asia they had it. We had a rail system. No one else had it. They, uh, we had infrastructure that no one else had. Not to the great uh, infrastructure that we have today, but there was for that time plenty, and and there was a lot of in, in, uh, investment in infrastructure at that point of time in telegraph and telecommunications, which was never seen on the Indian subcontinent, in rail, which was never seen on the Indian subcontinent, and and this is the legacy of the British. They did not only steal everything like the Indian National Congress likes to tell us. They did invest. There was investment in infrastructure, and any investment in infrastructure multiplies five times uh, with dividends and trickle-down economics. It always happens. There's always a multiplication of the amount of money in infrastructure investment um, in the form of trickle-down economics and 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 gain uh, capital um, capital dividends that comes out of investment um, by the government. So there was trickle down, but it only trickled down to the top level of society. That means the British, um, the British um, and the Nawabs, the Maharajas, the feudal lords, the Zamindars. Uh, what impoverished us was the Zamindars also, not only the education system that was that was cut off, the Zamindars uh, harnessing a, a big part of the wealth. Um, this was a system put in place as a Jagidari system by the Islamic invaders, then became the Zamindari system under the Mughals and continued by the British. So this system of slavery, of, of feudal slavery, uh, existed way before the British and just continued under them. 
and it was important to say that it was absolutely important to say this that the zamindari system made us uh, impoverished us and the and the rural india uh, as much as as any other group on the indian subcontinent so uh, this impoverishment did not start with the british it's it, it it is a part, it's a cycle of life after every empire that comes to an end, whichever the empire, anywhere or not, it is uh, a part of the cycle. Your money is gone, your investment is gone, and so there's no, there's no funds for investment in your armed forces or your military, and you lose wars, you lose wars, you will lose your territory. Um, one thing after that, uh, India has, has gone up slowly, but steadily we have moved up the ranks. It was not as great, um, however, it did, not, it did not go up, you know, uh, improve right off the bat. The first 60 years were as slow as ever. Yes, there was the good points, we have to take that, but there were bad points. We became a socialist state, okay? We became an absolute socialist economy. Um, Nehru closed the government, we became a socialist Marxist economy, and everything was concentrated in the hands of the Indian National Congress. And I just want to talk to you for, for this point about the, um, um, about the population of the Indian subcontinent. We like to say the British, the British, the British. When the British left, we were 900, um, the, the population of the Indian subcontinent was of, uh, of, of India was approximately $333 million, sorry, million people. 333 million people. Uh, by 1955, uh, we had 409 million, see, almost 410 million. 1960, 450 million. 1965, 499 million. 1970, 555 million. Uh, 1975, we moved to 623 million. That is a huge jump. 1980, 698 million. That means you're looking at about almost 150 million within the span of 10 years. 1985, 784 million. 1990, 873 million. 1995, 963 million. Uh, 2000, 1 million, 1 billion 56. Uh, million 2005 1 billion 147 uh, million 200 to 2010 1 million 234 million sorry 1 billion 234 million people 2015 1 billion 310 billion people 2016 1 billion 324 million people 2017 1 billion 338 um 2018 1 billion 352 2019 1 billion 336 uh sorry 366 um and and right now we stand as uh, 1 billion 410 million people um that has that has gone on for the last uh, as as we speak right now. Um, so, my dear friends, you see, we have multiplied four times over, four times over. 
okay um, four times over a multiplication uh, we have quadrupled the population the, quad the population of the Indian subcontinent from 396 million has gone to 1.9 billion if you take into consideration Nepal India Burma well I'll say Burma because this was part of the whole thing um, Bangladesh Sri Lanka and, and I'll put Afghanistan there too uh, but a quadruple in the population. Do you think we're going to get poor? Of course we're going to get poor. And did the British tell us to, get to, to quadruple in population? Did they tell us to produce so many children that we cannot look after them? We cannot give them food? We cannot give them clothing? Uh, we've got the same resources and now we're spreading it in, in one, among 1.4 billion. Is that the fault of the Modi government? No, it's not the fault of the Modi government. It is the fall of the Indian fault of the Indian National Congress, who let this country in the hands of the of the of the uh, zamindars who still exist, albeit in, in with another label, um, but still having their ecosystem is still on the ground, um, and that of the mullahs, tullahs, padris, and pandit who told up uh, the people on the ground, who were controlling the people on the ground, go out and produce. The British are coming, the British destroyed us, go out and produce. They made us live in fear, 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 fear. Oh, the world wars, the British killed so many people, the British, the British, the British, and all of a sudden, yeah, you go and produce and you quadruple. Now, the population of the planet has doubled since the last 75 years, okay? Worldwide, it has doubled, uh, which is unreal. I mean, you had the population of the planet for so many millions of years, all of a sudden, in 75 years, we just double from 300. We are almost 8 billion, 7 billion, 700 million. And we were half that, almost half, um, uh, in, in, uh, in 75 years ago. And, and as of that, a big part of it is come from India and China, out of which India is 1.4 billion. So... There is no way the British are responsible for the poverty in India in spite of what the Indian National Congress says. And this is a lie that has been told and person after person after person believes in this. It is idiotic. It is so disgusting. Uh, I'm ashamed to even say there's so many other things that we can learn from this junction in life. So much responsibility we can take. Uh, so much we can we can program in ourselves uh, to to change our mentalities. But we 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 revel and we find solace in the fact of in in the hypocrisy of pointing fingers at others whatever the person on the other side does it's our currents that form the waves it's very important to understand that science my currents form my waves your currents form your waves but the indian national congress has made sure that they keep us on this plantation of fear and aggression always angry for the last 70 years and they've blamed every single thing on the British even if the British were the worst people on the planet the problem is ours 1.4 billion is a quad quadruple increase in the population of the Indian subcontinent with the same resources do you not think that we are going to be impoverished yes so this is the biggest reason why we are poor even after the Mughals, even after the British, we were still not as poor as we were today. Um, we are 
we have been impoverished by the Indian National Congress for the simple reason is that we have quadrupling population. The next reason we are we are poor is the socialist Marxist education that was given to us. Um, we have um, first you had the Mughal, the the Islamic invaders who came and destroyed all our temples, not all, but a big bulk of these temples. These temples were part of a system, a system called the Gurukuls, a system, they, they, were, they were universities, they were centers of education, centers of knowledge, and these uh, temples were in a mutt. A mutt is a, is a, is a, is a community of uh, education system, education institutions like we talked the other day, uh, they are a system of a temple within a, a mutt where locals are given um, locals are given education, locals are given charity, locals are um, the locals of that area are, are given um, security, social security. They can go there for food. They can go there for medical ex medical help. They can go to the lo uh, local areas, local mutt for uh, some type of um, assistance in time of uh, deprivation, a debt, um, social services, anything. And the Mughal, the Islamic invaders took away the system of mutt um, and, and impoverished Indian subcontinent for that. The, the most richest um, uh, temples were taken and converted into mosques. Uh, the money was taken. And of course, our local Hindus sided with them as long as they got a cut of the of the dealings. So it was not just the Islamic invaders, uh, but also they destroyed the system of education uh, big time. Um, and uh, it was never the same again. The British came, whatever was left after the destruction of 800 or 1100 years, 1300 years of Islamic invasion from 711 AD onwards, the British sort of destroyed the rest. Okay, there was not much left. There is, but not much. After 1947, whatever was left, even in Ondo, uh, at that time, was taken over by the communist Marxist government of the Indian National Congress. So whatever much the system of education, the Gurukul system of education, whatever was left, along with the social services provided by the community of the MUTT, M-U-T-T, um, was totally wiped out. There was nothing left. And in place, we got a socialist system. I don't think I need to tell you um, that it's absolutely disgusting. The, the socialist Marxist system not only did not teach us anything, it made us dumb and dumber. Complete dumb and dumber. And tomorrow we'll talk about the education system in India, uh, the modern education, which is which which leaves us absolutely bewildered. Uh, even if, if if we had a better education system, we would not have 1.4 billion people today. One of the reasons why we are 1.4 billion is because our education system and the knowledge, the imparting of knowledge is absolutely lackluster and below par and kept this way to get the country completely out of hand and society to decay well in a way that no one can control it anymore and will break into splinter groups. 
so this is basically what it is. Um, the education system became Marxist, so from Islamic they became uh, uh, Christianized. From Christianized they became uh, Marxist and communist. And if you if you don't know your heritage, if you don't know the cycles of life, the, the accumulation of data it's that's embedded in your head, you're not able to challenge. You're not able to to say anything except submit, 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 and and pretend that you respect and appreciate everything or although you are volcaning out of proportions on the inside, uh, that's not going to help. That's why this country has not gone forward. Um, the only thing we've done, literally, is is multiply and quadruple our population. Where every time there's someone uh, someone is born, we have to feed them, we have to clothe them, we give them food, give them water, give them place to stay, give them education, invest in infrastructure for them, uh, in, in invest in medical infrastructure for them. Uh, all this takes time. All this is not in a hurry, and all this takes money. So when your unemployment goes up, what is it telling you? You got too many people. You got too many people. Obviously, your unemployment is going to get up. You have to give all these people uh, social services. That means uh, sort of welfare, because you you can't give them jobs. You can't create jobs for nothing. You can't create jobs just on the spur of the moment. Okay, well we got five hundred million people. We're going to create five hundred million jobs. We can't do that. We need time and, and effort and money for social services in the interim. That means food, free ration, free education. So and all of this costs money, and someone has to pay for it. So you will have uh, higher and higher prices of goods and services because somewhere up the line, the government has to make it back. Money is not coming from trees. This is not God. There is no God to give you money. This is just God is just a scam. To, to camouflage the the requirement of the ecosystem to produce so many children that uh, the society will break into multiple bits. Uh, but in reality, the problem is, is the fact that we've produced so many children um, and people and we have to pay for it in the form of social services and free education, uh, free medical services, free food, free... Uh, housing to give them and all of that costs and somewhere up the line we have to pay for it uh, so all those congress people who are out there crying and pretending that inflation is getting us well you know they should have done something about the population problem which they still do not want to to invest in they still do not they're trying to stop the indian government because they want it to get out of hand um, and that is the biggest problem um, in the Indian subcontinent, the inflation is because it's related in every aspect of the population growth, which has never been countered since independence and has just skyrocketed and skyrocketed and spiraled out of proportion. So that is your problem right there, and that's one of the biggest reasons we are impoverished. Um, it's also um, an attitude. Uh, this, sorry, it's also the socialism that. Uh, has impoverished us. Nehru's policies of socialism and Marxism um, suffocated the Indian subcontinent and its uh, ecosystem and its commercial ecosystem um, out of scope, completely out of scope, completely. There has been 
impoverishment across the board, no investment, um, bureaucracy, corruption, and that's why the Congress government has fallen down. They do not want to take their responsibility that their suffocation of socialism, um, any type of commercial activity, uh, trade and commerce has to go through them with their licenses, their bakshish, uh, their, uh, their license raj, and as a result of which any type of um, any type of uh, um, industries that are forming is is out is has no scope uh, because it's it's not easy to form any industries or. Uh, take care or invest in any industries. Foreign direct investment is not possible because of the suffocation, the corruption of the Indian government and it uh, and her and her governance. Uh, we know that we don't have to talk about it because it, it is uh, a reason. It is the biggest reason, one of the biggest reasons for the impoverishment of the Indian subcontinent. They don't want. They never change. They never evolve. They never. Um, adjusted the well, hardcore feudal system, calling themselves a socialism, a social entity, um, to camouflage their feudalism. Really, the Indian National Congress, but in, in the but in reality, they were a feudal group, and they want they still want that feudal group. Their son uh, Rahul is is going around the country with Bharat Jodo Yatra, but what has he done in the in in economics? Nothing. What is he invested? What is his plans in economics? Nothing. It's just a big uh, industrialist who, who allied with him are talking on his behalf. Um, and not only that, um, they, they demoralize and chastise and character assassinate every single group of uh, industry in the country who's producing these jobs, producing the, uh, uh, the employment for, uh, for our youth and, um, and making sure that the people who vote for them will always be on a slave plantation, giving them fear, giving them anger, instead of empowering them to, to invest, empowering them to start their own businesses, uh, taking it upon themselves to, to uh, uh, empower people, empower the youth. They are investing in demoralizing the youth only to, to increase their, their, their growth, their capital, their value, and to finally come to power. But you don't come to power by demoralizing a society. You do not come to power by demoralizing the youth. You come to power by telling the truth, by taking your responsibility, by understanding the currents that form your waves. But no, I told you yesterday, uh, a couple of days ago, that when we were young, we didn't have any money. But my grandfather had invested in shares of these blue chip companies in the 70s, and, and the investment from from these from these big companies is what kept us going, paid for our education, paid for everything. So it's not the church that that gave us our education. It is not the Indian National Congress and their socialist policies that gave us our education and paid for it. It's not the, the mullahs and tullahs and God that paid for our education. It were these big blue chip companies that paid for our education through their dividends. So when, when the Indian government invests in these blue chip companies and, and the socialists go, but he's investing, uh, he's investing in the strong groups, he's not investing in the weak, he, he's investing in all these big companies uh, and to empower them, all these ideologues have no idea of economics. 
neither does Ovesi, neither does Rahul Gandhi. Uh, they want you, they want us to be poor. They want us, they want us to be impoverished. They want us not to understand trickle-down investments. They, they want us to remain slaves and daily wage laborers by giving us a negative narrative and not getting us out of the box. Most important thing a government can do is invest in your industries, in infrastructure. Uh, capital investment in your infrastructure is the most important um, investment that a country can do. Investment in uh, your your big industries um, and your uh, banking and financial services that cater to these industries so that they create the jobs that will then uh, pay your salaries, pay your homes, pay your grocery bills, and the dividends from the shares that they have given out will further uh, empower uh, the people below and, and will further give them the, the finances required um, to, to, continue, to, to continue into our lives, into our daily living. Um, these big companies are an essential part of the Indian landscape. Without these big companies, with these companies being socialized like Air India was, it went from hero to one of the great companies of the world, airlines in the world, to literally the bottom of the ladder. It's all because of socialism. When a government decides to take a... Um, when a government decides to take decisions for your industries, they're not going to take it to be the best. They're just going to take it to make money and put money in their pocket. And every time someone comes for license, someone comes for something, they will, they and their families will get preferential treatment like in the feudal times and you have to wait in line. So um, socialism is what destroyed the Indian uh, economy. We were, were big, powerful economy. Even in 1947, after the breakup uh, of the Indian subcontinent, we were still powerful. The impoverishment came because of the Marxism, Marxist policies, socialist policies, which was uh, a grab by uh, the, the Congress government and the subsequent of, uh, corruption by its people, uh, by its license raj, because they knew they were a monopoly and there was no way people were going to take it away from them. So an absolute corruption drive and um, no investment into industries and empowering the youth and no investment, well, I wouldn't say no investment, but little investment in infrastructure, which is completely the opposite of what... Um, Narendra Modi is doing. He's opening up the government. He's liberating the socialist policies. He is liberating us from the stranglehold of socialism. Um, and in order to cover up this loss of revenue for the license Raj, this is why they go hate speech, hate speech, hate speech, because the lies that they have told us to cover up their uh, demoralizing impoverishment of India um, from 1947 onwards, uh, it's a story to be written by the history books and the generations to come, and they do not want to admit it. They do not want to say, we made wrong policies, we should have adjusted, we never adjusted, we became a feudal group, um, and uh, we're ready to change, but no, they don't want to do that. They want to blame the government, the Indian national, the Modi government for hate, 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 and polarization. Why are they blaming someone else for polarization? Because the three fingers are pointing back at them. 
Um, I just want to finish this off by telling you Pakistan in the 1950s and the 1960s was doing better than India. Their rupee was valued more than Indian rupee. Um, Indian rupee did not have uh, uh, well, much less value. The industries were doing well. Their sports were doing well. The education was doing well. They were a better country than, than, than India. Uh, and then in the 1970s, you had the government, the military government, um, going into socialism. They became socialists. They, they saw India and its socialists, its big industries, and, and the government having power over everything. Um, slowly by slowly, they, they, they went the Indian way, uh, which they should not have, because if they had stayed the capitalist way, they would have been a better country today. They camouflaged their socialism by Islam. And this was told to me by a Pakistani. Um, we were told, I, they told us, he said, we were doing a lot better in the 60s. We were doing a lot better in the 70s. We were a better country than India, which is true. Uh, economically, financially, he said, uh, the socialist policies of the Pakistani government in the 1970s, covered up by Islam and power put back into the hands of these ideologues, just like, just like Nehru uh, and Indira Gandhi put power in the hands of these mullahs, the tullahs, the the um, the padres and the pundits who told us make children make children make children children are going to god behind that they closed the economy took over the the, uh, the industries um and made us uh, a slave race literally a slave race while they blamed the british for everything but the british did not tell them to do this right the british were against socialism the british were for capitalism where we would have been a free-flowing metaphysical energy and they just went the wrong way. So Pakistan became socialist in the 70s. 50 years later, we know the reason for, we know where they are and what the outcome of those wrong decisions uh, that were taken in the 70s are being paid uh, for today by the current generation. And they keep blaming India, they keep blaming the West, but the real problem is the socialism of Pakistan, which was contrary to what Jinnah wanted. Um, and the a near bankruptcy of its state, unfortunately, um, and and this is why they become impoverished too. Um, this, my dear friends, is a story of impoverishment of Indian history um, for time immemorial. It is important to understand that we are cyclic. We will go down. We have to go up. But we have to learn from every single junction in life. And every time an empire comes down or a political group comes down, it's for lack of money, lack of finances. Your finances are over because you've spent the bulk of your finances on defense, on defending yourself. When the money is over, the finances are over. The military comes down. When the military comes down, that's the end of the story. Um, and so uh, the Indian... Um, subcontinent has been on a slow decline for the last thousand years, thousand five hundred years, slowly by slowly we've come down and um, the Islamic occupation has been sort of the worst where they've taken away the education, the ability to transfer that knowledge to a new generation, uh, generation after generation would led us to another Abrahamic group um, in the form of the Christian occupation and invasion of the Indian subcontinent for the crumbs, whatever was left. And when the socialist Marxists had a chance 
to resurrect the uh, Indian subcontinent, they did not. They made us. They they took us further down the tubes, and for the first time since a very long time, we have someone coming and taking us in the right way, in a way where we are free-flowing metaphysical energy, where the capital investment is in infrastructure, is on education, uh, is on um, maintaining relations with. Uh, with other countries in the world, with investment in your rural population, all of that, and hopefully the most important part, the population control of the Indian subcontinent or the of, of India, it is the most, most important part, that which has got us to the state where we are at right now. And uh, you and I will not be here uh, when this comes back into shape. But hopefully we can invest in, in knowledge and spreading that knowledge to our, to our um, fellow Indians. Um, and hopefully uh, that the conversation with them, with them will lead them to taking a responsibility to reduce the population and understand trickle-down economics, free-flowing metaphysical energy, and an ability to take our responsibility and not blame others for our problems. Um, that our poverty is because of our failed policies, but everything can be risen up, can be resurrected. When the sun sets, it has to rise to the next day, which means only one thing. We have a chance to learn and do it all over again. On that note, um, I wish you a great day. I hope, uh, I wish you a lot of uh, positive uh, energy, um, a lot of learning. Please share these podcasts. Please have that conversation, more importantly, with your friends, your fr on your Facebook groups, on your social media groups, with your families, with your co-workers. Uh, have that conversation. Very, very important. Externalize your emotion and you'll be free. So thank you very much for your time. Have yourself a great day.